Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Are you all in your First uh, Samuel 13 now? Oh, praise God. That's good. All right. So we're going to go into First Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. And it says this, Saul was, and then in your, some of your Bibles it says 30 years old, and others it doesn't. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, and some of your Bibles say 42 years over Israel, and some of them don't. And right off the bat, that leads us to, you know, as we're studying the Bible, we want everybody to understand and know so that when people question you, and go, see that Bible, it's not reliable. Okay? Um, There's a seeming discrepancy here. Well, in the literal translation, the word 30 is not there. It's really Saul was years old. So we don't know if... Somewhere along the line, a number got erased, and there was a number there, uh, or what for sure the number was. Very simple. Um, most likely what had happened was that it got inserted because of studying the rest of the Word of God and coming to an approach of that's probably um, what it was. But there's some difficulties with that. Uh, we do know for sure that Saul reigned about 42 years. Totally. And we know that because Acts 13.21 gives us the round number of Saul reigning for 40 years. It wasn't meant to be an exact number. It's kind of like when I tell you I you know, taught and coached for about 30-some years. Same, just an expression like that. The literal number was 37, but I don't always give that literal number. Same idea right there. Um, I did that, by the way, because that's going to come into play later on. You'll get that. There's a difficulty then with the number 30, because if Saul had only been reigning two years right at this point in time, that would make him 32. What's the problem with that? Well, as we read on, we see that Jonathan, his son, is already a commander. So either he got married and had Jonathan really young, or Jonathan you know, was 10 years old and a commander, I don't know. Um, so there's, there's an issue with maybe the 30 that was placed in there. Um, but there is another explanation uh, as well. But probably the safest thing to do at this point in time is realize that that wasn't what this was all about. What it was really telling us is that, that after two years of reigning, Saul began to change the way the army was organized. That's the main point that's being made here. Up until this time, Israel had militias, and basically they called the militias out, kind of like we did at the beginning of our country, right? And we called the militias out, and at times and seasons, they just go back home. So Saul, verse 2, it says, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his own tent. So in other words, now we're going to have a standing army, but he sends everybody else home. That doesn't mean they wouldn't call them back as well. And again, that's what happened in our country. We began to have the Continental Army, but still we had militias, and they were called into action at different times. So that's what's going on here. Now, if Saul was 30 or 31 when he did this, then there's probably a gap between verses 2 and 3, and that's another possibility. We, we don't know for sure how long there was in between there. It could have been quite a long time, and some scholars believe it might have been 15 to 18 years um, before this next one. And that, of course, then explains the fact that Jonathan is a commander at that point in time. But in either case, the point was here that Saul divided the army between himself at Michmash, two-thirds of it with him, 
one-third with Jonathan, which was about 15 miles away. So verse 3. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious, I like that word, Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned at Gilgal. Um, The NIV translates verse 4, now Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. I like odious better, I don't know, I just think it's a cool word. So, we take a look at what had taken place here, and we see that at some point, so many years, we don't know which, Jonathan decides to attack the garrison of Philistines at Geba, and he gets a victory. And at this point in time, we also begin to see a difference between Saul and his son, Jonathan. And as you continue in 1 Samuel, you'll see that Jonathan is a young man with great character. You'll see that he's brave, that he's loyal, that he's humble, and he's a person who trusts God. That's the character that we're going to see of Jonathan as we move along in 1 Samuel. But on the other hand, we begin to see something that we have earlier suspected about King Saul. You see, though God, as we mentioned before, has equipped Saul in many ways to do the job that he was called to do, Saul's true character begins to come out. Maybe you noticed as we were reading the verses that though it's Jonathan that wins the battle, who takes the credit? Saul himself takes the credit for that victory It's apparent that either his ego is too big or for some reason he feels the need to build himself up in the situation. And he says, let the news go out to all of Israel. Saul has won this victory. Now, I know that probably you have been around people that have done that. Maybe even at your job where you did something and someone else took the credit for it. You don't have to raise your hand. Because I imagine most of you are going, go, yeah, 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 it's happened to me. Right? And it's a terrible thing, isn't it? It makes you feel terrible. But before we get too hard on Saul, and before we get too hard on other people, we need to ask ourselves a question. Have we ever done that? Have we ever taken credit for someone else's work? Well, I'm going to promise you that we all have. And some are going to go, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You don't know me. You don't know I've done that. Yes, I do. I do. You have done that. We have all done it. Because if you have ever done anything good or right or had a victory in your life and you took credit for it, you were wrong. Because if you have ever done anything good or right or victorious in your life, it's only by God's grace and His power that you are able to do that. So now you can all say, yes, I have done that, because I know you have. So lesson number one for us today, and again, when we read through the Old Testament, the the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was given for us to learn from the mistakes that were made, and we want to learn. So lesson number one for us is give credit to God and God alone for any victory that you have in your life. He's the one who deserves that credit, not us. Remember back in chapter 12, when Samuel had to remind everybody that it was the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, 
And it was the Lord who sent them the judges to rescue them when they were oppressed. Remember that? Well, it's no different for us today. It's the Lord who gives us the victories in our life. Without Him, we have no victories. Think about this. Who of us by our own hand could save ourselves from the judgment of God? Who of us by our own hand could bring righteousness into our life? Who of us by our own hand can bring sanctification or holiness to our life? In fact, who of us can ever guarantee that we will even live one more day to do anything? It's God who grants us our very breath. And it's Him alone who gives us the ability to do anything good, righteous, or have victory. In what's likely the oldest book of the Bible, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You get it, right? We start with nothing. We take nothing with us. Whatever we have here on this earth is what God allows us to have. Whatever skills or abilities or even character traits that you have that might lead to any success that you have in life, then you need to give credit to God. Now, I know that's not always an easy thing to do. And I know that I certainly haven't been perfect at doing this. And I think back uh, to when I first, not when I first started coaching football, but a few years into coaching football, and, and I was moving up the ranks. In fact, I, I, I remember a newspaper article that called me a young and up-and-coming coach. And I look back at that, and I'm like, God, I wish to hear that one again. And so I was moving up the ranks, and uh, I had been an assistant uh, defensive coordinator, and then our head coach moved on, but we were really successful. Then a new coach moved in, and I was still the defensive coordinator. We were still really successful. And, you know, I began to think that, man, I'm, I'm really a good coach because look at all the success that we're having. I, it's got to be my brilliant game plans and the way I coach my players. And, and then I got my first head coaching job. Oh, boy, I'm going to prove it now. And our first year, we promptly went 1-8-1. and one. Okay, for you guys that don't know what that means, that means we won one game, we tied one game, and we lost eight of them. That's not real good. So much for my brilliant coaching. And I learned it was God who gave me the ability to be whatever kind of coach that I was. And it was God who blessed me with talented players over the years and good assistant coaches to get the job done. And it was him who allowed any of my future teams that had success to be successful. What I learned was that it was my job to do what he told me to do with the skills and abilities he gave me, to trust him for the results, and then give him first, then my players and my assistant coaches, all the credit. Later on in my coaching career, in fact, at my last high school, uh, we had just literally pounded the team who was the perennial league champions for many years in our league. And I won't name that school because there's some alumni here that would feel really bad if I do that. Um, and we finished undefeated in, in league play and won the league championship for the first time in the last 10 years of my school's history. It, it was a great win. It was one of my favorite memories of, of coaching uh, that particular game. It's one of the few games that I can really almost give you the play-by-play because it was just such a great thing. 
And then I remember being interviewed after the game, and the reporter was, was asking, well, how did you guys turn this program around? I mean, they, before we had come on, they had won, I think, three games in the last three seasons total. Well, I told him it was God's blessing and that we had great players and I had great assistant coaches. Well, he didn't care much for that answer, especially the God's blessing part. He'd go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, but, but tell me really, what was it? <laughs> I just told you what it was. No, no, I know, but really, what did you do? What, you, know, you must have done something. But I just kept giving him the same answer. Now, the truth was that we had, we had made some big changes in our off-season program. We had, we had changed our offense completely, and we had geared our whole program to beating this one team because we knew if we could beat these guys, we knew we would be league champions. So that's what we had tried to do, and we'd done several things different in our off-season program, and, uh, and, and that part was true. But, but I was telling him the absolute truth because without God's blessing, and I could tell you stories of things that happened during that season that were amazing and miraculous and it was God's blessing on our team that year. Uh, it was evident throughout the season and, and without the players that we had, good players that worked really, really hard and coaches that worked really, really hard, without all that it wouldn't happen. So what I told him was the exact truth. Credit to God first, my players and then my assistant coaches, that was the absolute truth. I, I don't know who the first one to say it, but in coaching... There's a, there's a very popular quote. It says this, It's amazing how much a team can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. And it's true. But I'd take it one step further, and I would say it's amazing what anyone can accomplish when they want God to get the credit. So we want to give God the credit for any victories that we have in our life. Well, Saul wouldn't give God the credit. He wouldn't even give Jonathan the credit. He took credit for something that he really had literally nothing to do with other than appointing his son as the commander. And I have a sneaking suspicion based on what we've seen previous in Saul's behavior and what we're going to see later in Saul's behavior that Saul might have been afraid to begin this war with the Philistines. He knew it was supposed to take place. God had made it very clear. But he hadn't done it. And it's possible... Jonathan being young and maybe eager uh, and with trusting God, it was possible he got tired of waiting around for his dad to do something and just went out on his own and said, I'm going to go attack this garrison, and he did. And now he had declared war on the Philistines. And uh, the Philistines decided, and I, I say the Philistines got ready to rumble. And we read in verse 5 that they were. Verse 5 says this, Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth Haven. Well, once again here, we have a little numerical discrepancy. There are many scholars who believe that number should not be translated 30,000 that it should be 3,000. And there's good evidence for that. The numbers look really similar in Hebrew. It would be easy to make that mistake. Um, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that they would have 30,000 chariots but only 6,000 uh, horsemen. In other words, five uh, chariots for each horseman. But either way, it's a minor thing. What we do see is this army is going to be extremely intimidating. 
Remember what the army was for Israel. 3,000 total. These guys have 3,000 chariots. They, the people of Israel had no chariots. It would be intimidating. And they were intimidated. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a, a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Kind of reminds you of Saddam Hussein, doesn't it? Also, some of the Hebrews crossed into the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Well, doesn't seem like they have a lot of confidence in this king that when they look back at this tall, handsome, kingly-looking guy, doesn't seem like they have a lot of confidence in him. It was this king that they wanted so badly, but what are they doing? They're intimidated and they hide out and some of them even defect to the other side. They went over to Gilead, to the side of the Philistines. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Verse 11, but Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, obviously by his answer, he knew he was in big trouble. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Verse 12, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. Kind of reminds me of Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Remember when the guy took the wrong cup? You have chosen foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. So this is going to lead us into lesson number two for us. When God gives you instructions to follow, it may take patience and it may take faith, but you need to follow those instructions. Have you ever noticed, too, how patience and faith seem to work so closely together? So closely together. See, Saul's inability to be patient and to have faith in the Lord, and that the Lord was in control, caused him to sin. And this was a great sin. First of all, Samuel had given him specific instructions to wait for him. When Samuel was delayed, Saul did something that Samuel called foolish. And it wasn't just foolish, it was an act of disobedience to the law. If you want to flip back into your Bible, you can look in Leviticus chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book, uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 8, Leviticus 6, 8. And you'll see what the law said. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, not anybody else, command Aaron and his sons, the Levites, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest, the priest, 
is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Verse 11, Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. This is called the continual burnt offering, by the way. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Verse 13, fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. That's one of the burnt offerings. There were several different versions of it. But the point of this was, it was the priest who offered this burnt offering. And only the priest was to do this. You see, God wanted to separate the office of priest and king. He did not want the king doing priestly duties. Because we know what happens when government gets in the middle of church, don't we? That's not what God wants. And so the only person who could do this was the priest. And there was only one person in history before this time that had ever held both offices. You guys know who that is. Who is that? The office of priest and king. What's his name? Oh, my goodness. Come on, you guys. You're Bible people in here. Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18. It says, In Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. In fact, some Bible scholars believe he was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnation. We could debate that for a long time. It doesn't make uh, that much difference. He was either a foreshadowing, he was Jesus, the only one to hold that particular office. Psalm 110 says, says in speaking of the Messiah, you, the Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So God had brought this picture of one order, the high priest and king. Now Samuel had given very specific instructions to Saul back in chapter 10, verse 8. You can look back there if you want. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 8. He says, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you, and show you what you should do. But Saul, once again, is given into his fear. He didn't have enough faith in God to be patient and wait for Samuel to get there. And if you look at it, he's so concerned about what might happen that he directly disobeys the commandment of God. Then he tries to blame Samuel for being late. And he even says, he forced himself to do what he did. He didn't want to do it. You know, the devil made me do it. I didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it, but he forced himself. I mean, how lame is that one? But once again, we need to look at our own lives. And we need to ask ourselves, do we always have enough faith to be patient and wait on the Lord? Or do we sometimes, in our impatience, take action in our own flesh? I mean, have you ever decided because of what the circumstances look like, dire circumstances, that you have to take an action, but you know that God has spoken to you and you're supposed to wait? You ever been in that situation? I have. 
And you also might be looking at this and sympathizing a little bit with, with Saul right now. You're, you're, you might be saying, well, well, wait a minute, it's Samuel's fault. He was late. He told him to wait for seven days. Well, obviously he wasn't real late because as soon as Saul finished, Samuel showed up. And the truth is that Samuel wasn't late at all. Samuel was right in God's timing. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. In 1 Samuel 13, we see the foolish behavior of King Saul. He's what the people asked for, but Saul was not the best of leaders. And the reason really was because he, he wasn't willing to wait upon the Lord and do things God's way. He made an excuse in 1 Samuel 13:12 that he was forced. He says, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You know, there are consequences to our bad choices. And in the end, the, the singular thing that the Christian life really is about, when you boil it all down, is whether or not you will do what the Lord's commanded you to do. You know, the, the, the Christian life is really about two commandments that sum up the whole law and really the whole Christian experience. It's to love God with everything that you are, and to love others as you would love yourself. And if you want to simplify your Christian life, you want to simplify your service to God, you want to simplify loving people around you, just focus on that great commandment. The first one is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, those two simple things yet so hard, you have the essence of the Christian life. You have what God's called you to do. You know, Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. You say, well, is love just always like this, you know, emotional experience, Pastor Michael? No, love, love is a decision. Love is an act of the will. Love is really demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. And what branches out from the trunk of love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You go down the list. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. But love is the key fruit. And then joy is an expression of love and peace is an expression of love and self-control is an expression of love. for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible, and we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.